Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex. Retweet. Talk about your songs. Talk about John 316. Wilson 316 says, Welcome to this latest edition of ESSR feature here on Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. As you can tell, I am not Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm in fact Stephen Wilson. And some people may have guessed what the show is about just from that wee intro. But for anybody not too familiar, today we are going to be looking back at the 1996 King of the Ring as it will be 25 years yes, 25 years since that particular pay-per-view when this show comes out and my god age is very mixed I think it's fair to say <laughs> this particular show but before we get in and talk about the King of the Ring 1996 just a usual bit of housekeeping here you can find us on all good social medias Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Suplex Retweet uh, we are on YouTube Suplex Retweets, Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet, and you can also find our large back catalogue of shows by searching Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet on your chosen podcast platform. Now, I'm going to introduce my panel in a way that they kind of remind me of each of the semi-finalists of the 1996 King of the Ring tournament. First off, there's the man who closely reminds me of the winner of that tournament, spoiler for the rest of the show, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, not due to his ability into the ring, not due to the fact how quickly his hairline deteriorated. David Talk. Oh, I thought you were gonna say uh, I thought you were gonna say Gary there, but you know what? I'll accept uh, I'll accept that, but it's uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Mm-hmm. Yes, and my next panelist reminds me a bit of Jake the Snake Roberts, given that he is well past his prime. As Gary Kidman. Mm. <laughs> oh, I, I feel like, uh, you know, somebody that used to enjoy a good few beverages on a night out. Remember, we could go in them. Uh, I'm a wee bit worried when I get my first proper night out in the town after this pandemonium's uh, pa- pandemic, sorry, is all behind us. Um, I remember there was one night you could do 15, 20 shots. I think one shot would do me in, so never mind a cheap bottle of Thunderbirds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, now, the next guy reminds me of uh, Big Van Vader. Uh, not due to anything to do with Vader, more to do with the fact that you have often seen him, like Vader was at this time, associated with a very, very annoying individual. Vader had Jim Cornette, and this man has his brother Ross. Scott McLeod, everyone. Uh, that's what you do, yeah. Give him the winner, give them Hall of, you know, Hall of Famers, give me the one that's fucking beats. That's what you do. 
Jeez. Well, um. Well, let's take a the, dark turn. Yeah, the final. Semi- we'll anyway. <laughs> the final semi finalist isn't, you know, either of those things, but yes, I could compare this man to marvellous Mark Marrow because, let's be really honest, he probably has punching like Mr. Marrow was back in the day. It's <laughs> <laughs> Christmas. Do you know what? All the way through that, I was like, right, I want to be Austin, I want to be Austin. Damn it, I'm not Austin. Right, I want to be Merrill, I want to be Merrill. <laughs> so, I got my second best choice. Uh, yes, definitely punching. Um, I just love how... Imagine, like, turning up for your work one day, or turning up to a social event, and your boss being like, ah, oh, you've got a nice wife. Tell you what, let's sack you off for the rest of your career and employ her instead. <laughs> it's a very, very, very interesting manner of doing things. But yes, happy to be here, Stephen. Yeah, Mark Marrow, the one guy who will not try to fight to get his ex-wife back. Let's be honest, he'd get absolutely murdered. <laughs> uh, so yes, we are here to talk about The King of the Ring 1996. The day after, hopefully, many people on this particular panel will be celebrating Scotland making the last 16s of the Euros. Fingers crossed. But yes, The King of the Ring 1996. It took place at the Mecca in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on June 23rd, 1996. What a time this was. Killing Me Softly was top of the UK singles charts. The top grossing film across the the, the UK was The Rock. No, not a documentary on Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who had yet to debut the WWE at this point in time. Oh, the very, very enjoyable film starring uh, Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage trying to get Valkyrie's. The N64 went on sale in Japan and for any NFL American football fans, Chris here, the Scottish Claymores beat Frankfurt Galaxy 32-27 to win the 1996 World League of American Football, the first time that they'd won it. And the Scottish American football team had ever won it. Bit trivia there to start off this particular show, but we're going to talk all about the wrestling, and obviously the 1996 King of the Ring uh, t- uh, tournament took place on this particular show, along with a uh, card of five other matches, including three championship matches. Uh, now, before I get on to the show itself, uh, we have Chris here, who gladly went through some of the shows before the King of the Ring. Uh, Chris, give us a brief couple of minutes outlay of what was going into this show. So for my sins, I went through everything from In Your House Beware of Dog plus Beware of Dog 2 and went through every Raw all the way through to the end of King of the Ring. I've never watched this at the time. I started watching wrestling in very late 1999, so this was completely new to me. I'll give you a lightning quick recap of where we're at in the WWF at this time. So, um, 60-man tournament to crown the King of the Ring. I won't go through everyone, but it came down to four men, as Stephen so brilliantly introduced earlier. Stone Cold, Steve Austin, Wildman, Mark Merrill, Vader, and Jake the Snake Roberts. Stone Cold beat Bob Hawley in round one with the Million Dollar Dream. It was his first night on the job without Ted DiBiase as his manager, as he left the WWF at In Your House couple of nights before. He then defeated Savio Vega in the quarterfinal with his first ever Stone Cold Stunner on uh, the 17th of June 1996. Savio Vega in this match hits an amazing spinning heel kick. Sadly, uh, didn't win the match. Uh, Wildman Mark Meadow beat Skip in round one before beating Owen Hart in the quarterfinal. And in the other bracket, Vader beat Ahmed Johnson with a little bit of help from Owen Hart and then got a bye to the semi-finals 
due to the Ultimate Warrior and Goldust going to a double elimination in their first round match. Jake the Snake Roberts, the final competitor, beat Hunter Hurst Helmsley with a beautiful DDT in round one. Vince is really on the Jake hype train. He says he's made a triumphant comeback to the WWF and he then beat Justin Hawk Bradshaw in the quarterfinals on Superstars two weeks later, which isn't on the WWE Network. Sad face. Um, there's some really candid promo footage which runs all the way through the pay-per-view where he talks about getting his life back, getting his family back together and King of the Ring being his redemption. And on the go-home raw, Jake beat Goldust by DQ after Goldust used Goldust. Still with me, hopefully. Um, <laughs> elsewhere on the card, WWF Championship match between Shawn Michaels and Bulldog. Shawn won the belt from Brett at WrestleMania 12 in the Iron Man match. This match stemmed from Bulldog claiming Shawn was making untoward advances towards his wife. And uh, Bulldog cuts an amazing promo in the final week before the match, saying Sean tried to take what's most valuable to him, so Bulldog will retaliate by taking what's most valuable to Sean. They had a match at In Your House Beware of Dog last month. It ended in a double pinfall draw, although it kind of looks like Bulldog gets his shoulder up, so he should maybe be WWF champion at this point. We get a rematch for the title tonight. Uh, Intercontinental Championship match was between Goldust and Ahmed Johnson. Ahmed was stretchered out of his King of the Ring match, after being attacked by Owen Hart, but on the stretcher, Goldust kisses him as he's been wheeled away. Vince says, that's the most disgusting thing I've seen in my life. That does not stand up in 2021. Uh, next week on Raw is confirmed, Ahmed faces Goldust for the title tonight. Uh, the WWF Tag Team Championship is between the Smoking Guns and the Godwins. This is all just around Sunny, basically. She jumped from managing the Godwins to the Guns during their title match at In Your House leading them to lose the belts and the guns to win. She previously jumped from the body Donnas to the Godwins, so she's fair got about, has Sonny. Um, <laughs> Understatement right there. Two other, <laughs> two, other, two other matches which aren't for titles. Mankind faces The Undertaker in his very first WWE pay-per-view match. Mankind previously attacked Undertaker as he was about to win the Intercontinental Championship at In Your House from Goldust. He also attacked him during Taker's match with British Bulldog, helping Bulldog win by countout. And uh, the last match is Jerry Lawler taking on the Ultimate Warrior. The night after In Your House, Lawler stopped Warrior from returning to the ring by sort of brandishing a wooden chair at him, causing him to be counted out and uh, not progress in the King of the Ring. Lawler tried to make amends for his error in judgment by painting him a picture. But Warrior rejected it, leading to Lawler smashing the frame over Warrior's back. He very uh, noticeably smashes the back of the frame, not the glass side. So uh, unlikely to cause any harm whatsoever by hit, being hit by a small piece of cork. Um, the final week before the pay-per-view, Lawler beats up Aldo Montoya as a message to Ultimate Warrior. And this, of course, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, is the final pay-per-view match for the Ultimate Warrior. So yes! That is your backstory. I've never seen the pay-per-view before. I've never seen any of those boring Raws before. I'll never watch them ever again. Let's get into this pay-per-view, which is significantly better than the four weeks of build. Yeah, we're going to go on. But first of all, about the King of the Ring tournament, because, you know, that was the thing there. Before we had money in the bank, we had the King of the Ring, which was a great occasion. Now, I like in the panel I've kind of got here, because I've got three guys who I think not as averse to this kind of era. Well, just probably watching more historically. Dave, as everybody know, pop wrestling was invented in 2003. And Scott, who was born in this year. So, <laughs> there we go. But we've got after, Gary here. After this show. <laughs> after this show. 
But we've got Gary here, who lived through this and watched wrestling at this particular time. Uh, Gary, semi-finals of the King of the Ring, as we mentioned, because Chris mentioned very well. We had Stone Cold versus Jake... No, it's not sorry. Stone Cold versus Mark Merrill, and Jake the Snake Roberts versus Vader. Uh, I think it's fair to say these are two very different matches. I think that's a fair, fair way of putting it. Very much so. I mean, that was one of the things that I always loved about the King of the Ring. You get some quite random matches uh, along the way, but I've got to say, Stephen, before we delve into this, I hated this presentation of the King of the Ring. I liked the qualifying matches happening on Raw or Superstars, and then you got into the... uh, you, you had eight superstars going into the, the main tournament which happened on the night and so to win the tournament you had to go through three three rounds if you like so like when Bret Hart won it he had Razor Ramon Mr. Perfect Bam Bam Bigelow that feels more substantial to me than somebody winning two matches in a night uh, so I hated this format that they did I can understand why it was done in this way to try and pad out stories and build up uh, some anticipation to it but I, I hated this pre- particular presentation of it but yeah it was uh, it was really interesting watching this one back and yeah you're very very right about the, the pairings I thought um, Jake and Vader one n- was not a good idea um, and Austin and Marrow starting it off I am when I watched this one back, uh, it was amazing to see the, you know, how over Mark Marrow was at the time, or how popular he was. Uh, well, you know, you could argue it was probably stable; people were cheering for. But he was over, and I remember the pop when Mark Marrow won the Intercontinental Title, um, and we got a ton of time for that match, 16 minutes, which I think was actually when I watched it back again was far, far too long. Uh, it was. Um, there were some really good sequences in the match, um, but the audience it was really telling for me. I thought the audience were particularly lukewarm towards Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, in that uh, in that match. Some nice um, sequences of high risk moves towards the end by Maro. Uh, you know, we had a cannonball over the top rope, suicide dive, a missile drop kick, hurricane, all by today's standards fairly uh, low key, but. In 1996, these were big, these were big moves. Something else I found that was really interesting watching this match back or watching this tournament back is the way that people took the Stone Cold Stunner as well. It was so so different to the way we went on to went on to see it. So I thought I thought a, a decent match. I wasn't overly blown away with it, and I certainly wasn't blown away with Jake and uh, Vader. But you know. Credit where credit's due. Both of them had banging uh, entrance music. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's probably the one thing you can kind of say about that match. Uh, Dave, uh, Gary rightfully said, 16 minutes, 49 seconds for Stone Cold Mark Merrill, the longest match of the entire tournament. Three and a three quarter stars from the other Dave, the less famous Dave in our eyes, Meltzer. <laughs> uh, wasn't as fond on Jake and Vader, a quarter star. Uh, oh yeah, because right. that was a that was a sort of blinking you miss it. But in, a, in all fairness, like you know, they they kept emphasizing that Jake was in his forties at that point. You know, he was overcoming a lot of demons and stuff, and there was no way he was going to last more than you know maybe say five minutes with Vader. Dave, so they, Dave yeah. do you know what age Vader was when this match took place? 
I bet he was, was he older? He was 41, Jake was 41 as well. So they were the same age, yeah. So that's the thing they were emphasising about Jake's age, but you know, why would they not pick it on Vader's age? Like, obviously, because they had to emphasise that Jake was in this massive comeback story. But um, honestly, I think if that happened in this day and age in a King of the Ring tournament, people would be fuming because... Well, I mean, in all fairness, in all fairness to Jake, you know, you have to sort of protect him in, in some capacity. But at the same time, it was it's still a bit of a screwy finish so late in the tournament. Like that's the sort of thing you'd expect to see maybe in a, a first or second round match, but not something you'd want to see in the semi-final. But in all fairness, um, what happened afterwards? You know, Vader and Cornette backstage, they were literally fuming at each other. And what happened later on in the night would sort of give Vader like a new a new purpose, a new direction and stuff. So I suppose it did work out in some capacity, but yeah, by a country mile, Austin versus Merrill was definitely the the match of the night. And I remember what Gary was saying about the very lukewarm reaction to Stone Cold. It was like when he hit his first stunner on Savio Vega, the crowd were just dead for it. And in hindsight, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see that that's actually now one of the most iconic finishers in all of wrestling. Yeah, I think... Um Scott, the way he delivers the stunner at this particular point in time, he's a heel, and the stunner's meant to be, you know, chin, neck, to shoulder. It's a devastating move. Whereas when he was in his peak, you know, in the attitude era, it was a big build to the stunner, you know, type of thing. But this one was meant to be. This is probably how he should have done the stunner when he turned teal in 2001. I think yeah, the importance of the, the kick before he delivers the stunner is further emphasised when you watch the first few times he does the stunner because the kick kind of gives you a time to kind of anticipate it and then get a bigger pop when he delivers it. And the other thing that's really different about Stone Cold here is, uh, I mentioned in the group chat when I was watching this, like, Austin's got one of the most iconic theme songs of all time, because uh, of the glass jar and everybody knows that's the Stone Cold coming out. This theme song, on the other hand, is very underwhelming. It doesn't suit Stone Cold, I think. I know he's trying to go for this whole ruthless, like, Stone Cold. He was thought that they inspiration behind the name Stone Cold was like the zero girl and it was the Iceman but I just it just felt very jarring when he was coming out for it and it was a good clash of sales between him and Merrill I loved I put my notes Vince when Mark Merrill comes out puts on his Shawn Michael voice that wow here we go Mark Merrill and then literally Merrill's not even out before Vince yells very loudly where's Sable so the warning signs for how Merrill's career was gonna go were, were there from the offset and honestly Looking back in hindsight, we all know that Austin was uh, the obvious, as, as it was also the best choice to win it. And we know that it was meant to be uh, Triple H, who it just shows how far he had to fall for a couple months. Not only did he lose the first in the first round of a tournament he was originally meant to win, he's on the dark match of this show, he's nowhere to be seen on this pay per view. <laughs> but I would, it's interesting that they didn't think of Vader as an alternative winner, mm-hmm. because you know, they're not akin to having heel winners the previous two years, heel winners. The previous two New Year's, another tournament had a heel winner, although Mayo was always a babyface in my eyes. But also, like, because Austin mentions that he's promo about taking a championship shot, which also Triple H was meant to get, but Austin doesn't really challenge for the title after this, whereas Vader, we know headlines, SummerSlam was meant to win the title briefly from Sean. So that would have been a great launching pad for him. And yeah, while the the thing was uh, the Snake and the DQ grabbing the ref was really, really executed. I think it was meant to keep Vader strong while giving, while making Jake look sympathetic going in weakened against Austin. Yeah, this show, this show had quite a few weak finishes in it, and this mm-hmm. was this obviously was the first I mean, of them, which was really, really poorly executed. 
it made absolutely no sense. It was really stupid because Jake hits the DDT. Jake could win the match by, you know, one, two, three. You know, it was just like, it came out of absolutely nothing. You could have uh, just had, like, Vader beating him down the corner and the referee keeps doing the vacuum, but Vader won't get out, so the referee can use him. So he'll still go in, he still goes in injured and he accomplished the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, I did not uh, remember Mark Merrill being a good wrestler. I remember him being a guy that used to be a boxer. At one point, I didn't actually realise he was a decent wrestler, but mm-hmm. it's a very surprisingly technical match, this one, Chris. Mm-hmm. The thing, the thing about um, marvelous Mark Merrow is that um, see when he was in WCW, he, he always kicked off their pay per views. I think during I've watched a lot of the Dungeon of Doom stuff from WCW, where Mark Merrow opens up almost every pay per view against uh, I think DDP predominantly, but um, he he's kind of like John Cena in the sense that he's got like a cool move set. In fact, that doesn't ring true for John Cena, actually. But he's got, like, five moves, essentially. <laughs> um, and uh, when they brought him in, they tried to get him to do a lot of different stuff. And, you know, supposedly, I don't really, I wasn't there 25 years ago, sadly. But supposedly, he was like, yeah, I can kind of just do the, the rope flip thing and the other flip thing. And I can do the thing off the top rope. That's about all I can really do. Um, I think, I, I really like Mark Meadow, but I think his days were really numbered in the WWF. I, saying that, I did really like the Stone Cold Meadow match. I thought it was believable all the way through that Meadow could beat him. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked that we got to see a bit of the later Stone Cold in this match. Like, JR starts saying stuff like, oh, he's very calculated. And just in the way that he works, it's very methodical. I was like, oh, this is, this is the Austin that he would grow into. Um, I loved... Um, when uh, it, I loved him how we get the Stone Cold Stunner in the match and as you guys said he just sort of like takes him by the neck and does it and that's it that's 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 the win right there and of course it's Mark Meadows first WWF loss and it kind of all goes downhill from here I like to say that um, Owen on commentary will speak about this I'm sure in detail Owen on commentary was absolutely great it was a great way to get him on the card um, considering he wasn't wrestling Owen on commentary during this match talked about how like the stunner is just the move that's going to win the tournament and that's how Savio Vega lost so why didn't Mark Merrill study ways that he could have avoided it I was like ah Owen you genius that's so true (laughs) Um, and of course do you know about the stitches yes um, 16 stitches his mouth got busted open and then he had to get literally taken to the hospital during the show and had to be back in time for the final I've got it yeah. on my notes. Bloody plunge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, I think because comes off the top and his head smacks back of his head smacks into Austin's, and yeah. I think that plays into his promo later on because he had to ask somebody before he went out for a final, what did Jake say before his match? So because he had to think on the fly what he was going to say when he won these the final. Yeah. The irony of it, of course, is when we get to the final, the story is Jake having this horrendous. Injuries after Vader's beatdown. This is Stone Cold, who had a legitimately bad injury <laughs> going into it, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was quite ironic. Yeah, the um, the final match. I mean, the the King of the Ring final. You meant to think this could historically, I would think King of the Ring final. These you know length of matches should probably be with ones in history. Rikishika and go. Cut Edge, Brock Lesnar, cut, uh, Brock Lesnar and RVD, um, 
Billy Gunning the X-Pack is better than this one uh, <laughs> Stone Cold and uh, Jake the Snake Roberts um, 4 minutes 28 seconds half a star from Meltzer uh, Dave uh, for a match that has surrounded by one of the most iconic moments in wrestling history mm-hmm. it sucked <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, it was a massive massive letdown but Again, it's the same story with Jake Roberts. You know, he, he could only do so much in the ring, and this wasn't even a this wasn't even a beatdown followed by a comeback story. Like you had no way of believing that Jake was going to win this one. Like it was all Austin in this one. He just went in, stopped a mud hole uh, in Jake Roberts, and I mean, Jake did get like one maybe one second of resurgence towards the end, but there was no way of believing that anybody was going to win this other than Austin and even the well obviously you know Austin cut the 316 promo on the on the on the stage afterwards you know that was the iconic moment in itself the the overall sort of grandeur of the King of the Ring you know it's meant to be this majestic royal coronation it was anything but it was just Stone Cold being Stone Cold and I suppose that's adding its own kind of its own sort of twist to it you know Austin was never one to beat around the bush he was always straight to the point uh, in delivering his promos but when it comes to something like King of the Ring you know he's got to at least you know wear the robe put the crown on or at least take the scepter with him but none of that really sort of happened it, he was just there he beat Jake Roberts he's King of the Ring and then he's then he's off skate it's just yeah I mean given how much emphasis they put on the King of the Ring tournament like not just in future years but previous years as well with the whole coronation this year just felt a little bit empty mm, uh, Chris has- not much to talk about in the actual match. Most of it's just at the moment after the match. But something you'd like as a fan of the WCW days, they pay a wee bit of a homage before the match to the old Hollywood Blondes with uh, Brian Pillman, who cuts the weirdest promo I've seen in my puff. Some of the things he was saying. <laughs> that's definitely not... That definitely, you're talking about gold dust not floating in 2021. That promo would not float from Pillman. But uh, pretty much Pillman giving a bit of motivation to his old tag team partner was a nice thing to see. Yeah, um, Pillman's promo... Do you know what? It didn't work on two levels, which is how you know you really haven't worked. On one hand, he tried to go after the crowd, but as we're going to talk about, I'm sure, Jerry Lawler already went after the crowd, so for him then to go and try and take the ref out of the crowd, I was like, no, we've done that tonight. Don't do that again. And then, like, (laughs) there was so many references, like, I had to actually look them up. He says, no wonder Jeffrey Dahmer tried to consume this whole state. I was like, what the hell is that talking about? Turns out Jeffrey Dahmer was a convic- convicted serial killer and cannibal in the uh, state of, um, what is it, Milwaukee? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, uh, whoa. Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin. So, uh, and uh, and then I was just like, right. And it's, it's cool. Like I've seen the end of his WCW run with the match with uh, Kevin Sullivan and how he walked out of WCW. And that's the sort of start of the loose cannon. It's cool now to see that from the WWF side because I've never seen any of his WWF wrestling. I've seen the um, thing with Austin in the house and the gun and all that, but I've never seen him wrestle in WWF. So it was cool how at the the start of the match, as you said, he walks out and does this sort of cutthroat sign to Austin as if to say, "Go in there and absolutely do him." And I like that they they had the option here to to do a, a new attitude era style Hollywood blondes of them both being badasses. Obviously, what they did worked out quite good as well. But yeah, a lot of what Pillman said would absolutely not fly. I am going to rape 
pillage and plunder this entire federation. Just who's who wrote that for him? Who thought that was fine? These are not uh, things that are fine to say, let alone 2021. They probably weren't fine to say in 1996 either. Well, this was a time, remember, you know, the TV was pushing a lot of edges and stuff. You know, this was a show. This was a time when, like, South Park started going on air. You know, they were getting away with, you know, ridiculous content. I think it was a time when people wanted to push the boundary, and this was meant to be sort of adult-style television, even though you could tell there were so many kids in the audience at the time, most of which are probably the same age as kids that are into WWE these days. Yeah. Mm. You just said that, like, about the promo not working. I mean, when we see the dark side of the ring, that the main thing Perlman had to rely on was his promo ability when he got brought in because his ankle was fucked. And so, like you said, if he, if he comes in here and his, his debut promo doesn't, like, hit the mark, then it's going to be one of those things where Vince realizes, I've signed this guy for so much for all this money. And it's actually interesting how many people on this show have actually been featured recently in Dark Side of the Ring. You've got Jake, Warrior, Hillman. It's just quite interesting. Uh, yeah, Dave, talk about something you mentioned about, uh, what, about Stone Cold and the, the King of the Ring garment, like the, the crown and the scepter. Like, I, I would have liked him to have sat in the chair at least. Mm-hmm. But uh, his warrior randomly goes over and holds up the crown for some reason. I don't know why he does that. <laughs> but I think it's actually good that Austin didn't put the, the crown and everything on because some guys can pull it off. Like when Hunter Selmsley as a blue blood did it for a while, or when King Booker did it. But then there are some people like, uh, well, like Seamus, when he tried it for a while, like Corbin, most of his thing was King. And also, especially when he tried to be a new serious character, Stone Gold, it wouldn't have worked. When I looked right for me, where the crown had carried the scepter around, it's all he had to do was say, I'm the King of the Ring. Because, like, yeah, he, his whole thing of not being associated with TBS was he wanted to be a more serious character and when everybody else around was basically cartoon characters. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'll leave it to you to kind of talk a wee bit about you know, the promo, you know, because I think we've established that the match isn't worth talking. But. Well, I think one of the best things you can say is thankfully the manner of Stone Cold's victory didn't hamper what was to follow because the match was awful. Uh, I think the intention was to get heat on Austin by beating up a sympathetic babyface. I'm not sure that really happened, but the promo, you could hear and feel the audience shift from not caring to caring about this guy during the the promo. And as you said earlier on, it is an iconic moment in the history of wrestling and some of the lines that he delivered during it were just fantastic get that piece of crap out of my ring you ain't got what it takes anymore and then some of the more sort of uh, inflammatory stuff that he mentioned thumping your bible Austin 316 buy a cheap bottle of Thunderbird and then when he got to the the end and delivered that killer uh, and that's the bottom line you know, the audience were, I, th- I think the audience went from being very lukewarm to Stone Cold to really engaging with them. I mean, this was the start of Austin 316. It planted some seeds that night, big style. So um, I think the crowd will nail throughout all the match. But you could hear and feel the audience change. I mean, you look back on it, you can see uh, that the genesis of Stone Cold Steve the Stone Cold Steve Austin that we all know and that Stephen Wilson loves oh I love Austin 
I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Stone Cold Steve Austin. I would, well, I would be I'd doing this podcast. I'd probably still be here somewhere and somehow. <laughs> but I would not be doing this podcast if it wasn't for Stone Cold Steve I have watched the WrestleMania 17 main event maybe twice in my lifetime. Because I was, I watched it like recently for that stretch of WrestleMania because I can't bring myself for that heel turn. <laughs> it made me so sad as a kid. Uh, it nearly put me off. No. Oh, white guy. Uh, up there in terms of promos, guys, where would this rank to you, world in history? Top five at least. Yeah, it has to be because, like, yeah. it's, it's simple, it does what it needs to. And, you know, over the years people have said, oh, you'll never see a promo like this again. I don't think. I think that's true to an extent, but it's not to do with like promo ability because there are so many great promos across WWE and AEW. Particularly in uh, WWE, you don't get the freedom that Austin had to go out and cut because his pause between saying Johnson 316 and then saying Austin 316 kind of shows that he's making this up as he goes along and just it just it's just by sheer miracle and his ability that that it works as well as it does. And Austin 316 turned out to be, I think, one of the best-selling T-shirts that WWE uh, were able to sell. So that just one catchphrase alone is kind of what you know made that promo so so iconic. And like, I think they still, for a couple of months after this, are hesitant, but even especially is hesitant to print Austin 316 on merchandise. I think uh, like even a year later, when he sees how much money gets raked in from those shirts, he realizes why did I wait so long? I I think that. In terms of the significance of this, I think that the two, and, and I know nobody will agree with me, I think that the two most important wrestling promos in wrestling history are this and Hulk Hogan's This is the New World Order of Wrestling Brother. Because both of those statements, those single lines, this and Austin 316 says, I just want you ask, both are the reason that those two companies had the successes that they did. Hulk Hogan changed WCW the day he said New World Order and Austin changed WWF the day that he said 316. They came within like a month of each other as well. Exactly, the timing is amazing. Right at the peak of the Monday Night Wars as well. In, in um, In the one of the... It was a nonsense match, I think it was... Oh no, it wasn't a nonsense match, it was Owen Hart defeating Yokozuna. Owen Hart obviously would be defeated before the semi-finals. Vince on commentary actually just hits out with like, oh and by the way, well I've got you, uh, we hear that there's two wrestlers who are currently in another company, they don't work for us and we don't want any <laughs> anyone to think that they work for us in any capacity. So again I was like, oh this is a week after Scott Hall's promo in WCW. So the timing of all of this is insane. Like Austin's stratospheric rise starts almost at the exact same time as the NWO's does it's mad that the timing of these was so on top of each other mm-hmm. it's interesting yeah, it like you talk about everybody assumes like I'm not taking away from the significance of that Hogan promo because also it helped like, kickstart this whole storyline because of the reveal of the third man but apparently people assume that the night after Bash of Beach is when the 83 week started it actually starts like we're about the week or so after the week after Kevin Nash makes his debut is when the 82 weeks actually starts. But this helped obviously prolong it, the inclusion of Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting one. Uh, Jamie can't talk too much about match quality for this King of the Ring uh, tournament because other than, you know, Austin Mero on this night, there wasn't much to it. But the... it's, only, it's only four minutes long, the final, and yet they still take a big breather in the middle for Gorilla Monsoon to get in the ring. 
and then yeah. doing the big heroic wave. No, I'm going to continue to get a few punches. I nearly missed the stunner, it was that quick. I mean, it's a three-hour show, and 16 minutes for Mark Marrow, four minutes for Vader and Jake, and then four minutes for the final. So the King of the Ring show, you've got about half an hour of in right half an hour of action for the tournament yeah you've got four matches I think between the, sem- the second semi-final match and then the final which is I think gives more appearance to what uh, Gary said I agree with you that I prefer the, the one night format with the eight with the four semi- four quarterfinals the two semis and the final with the occasional match to break up in between and then the main event also for the title because I think maybe the reason they went they tried this format for a few years is because the year before, even though Mabel is clearly the greatest King of the Ring winner of all time, that particular one, that particular one night tournament was not very well received by the fans that night. Ah, yes. I mean, Mabel, Mabel had a lot of dross to put up with that night, so you can't can't blame Mabel for. You know, it was his fault that IRS was in the tournament. <laughs> no. I mean, an interesting thing is the main event match, which we'll go on to talk about now between. Shawn Michaels of the British Bulldog lasts 26 minutes 24 seconds lasts longer than the three King of the Ring matches in this night combined which is something but it's Shawn Michaels and British Bulldog two of the the all time greats in many people's eyes uh, former quarter star match this is given uh, by Meltzer which I'm surprised he gave it so high because it's quite shenanigan heavy for a very technical mm-hmm. bout that the two of them have here uh, Scott I'm going to start with the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. the um, something that the still randomness to me that uh, for nearly a year, Shawn Michaels was accompanied to the ring by Jose Lafario, <laughs> who I still forget existed in the particular world in WWF. <laughs> yeah, I always feel bad when I see Jose because you know there's all sorts of stories like Jim Cornette and one of the main ones talking about it that Shawn wasn't a very nice to Jose, even though Jose was the one who trained him. So. Like it goes to show how we went to an arsehole Sean was back in the day. Uh, I'm actually surprised there weren't more shenanigans. I thought they were going to do a thing with Perfect. You know, Mr. Perfect was the outside referee. I thought he was going to be the inside referee. He had to do some sort of bump where he gets taken out. And then Earl Hebner comes in to count and to give Phil Dog further complain that he's getting screwed over and everything like that. But you know, how it was. pointless was Mr. Perfect in that uh, Go in it, Scott. I mean, it was just a waste of time. I thought. I think they just wanted to create some intrigue because they kept once or twice they mentioned WrestleMania 10, where obviously Perfect was referee and he DQ'd Lex Luger. Everything. Although I think he saved us from Lex Luger winning the title. To be fair, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they just trying to create some like intrigue because like they real. I think they quickly realised like you know what, maybe this thing with Diana and Sean isn't uh, the best look. Uh, so let's slip, move on to Bulldog feeling like he's been screwed over by officials and all sorts and I think it's one of Bulldog's better matches I think Bulldog when he goes in against someone like a Sean or someone like Brett that's when he's at his best because he was very limited in terms of the ring I still think his best Bulldog's best match is probably the, the Wembley match against Brett but this mm-hmm. kind of yeah. there's a very similar style match you know him Sean bumping around for like the bit where he lifts them up and just throws them to the outside so there's a <laughs> I did, find, I did make me circle like there's a bit where they're both wrestling and you can see their backs covered in gold because gold yeah. was out earlier on and I enjoyed it uh, you know like it, it's good when Bullock against somebody like a good worker like Sean because Bullock like I said is very limited and his promo earlier on good lord oh god that's something oh, I think that helped I held that helped Bulldog back a lot I think his ability to quit promos like, like even then like 
you've got Jim Cornette there. Why are you even speaking at all? Well, I'll just let Cornette because for all his faults, Cornette's a hell of a promo. Uh, uh, Chris, one of the things Scott mentioned that you mentioned earlier on when you kind of seeded in what was happening before the show, the stuff with uh, Diana Smith, you know, Brett and Owen's uh, sister, Bulldog's wife, uh, was obviously something they played into leading into it. But even though they didn't allude to it, they still tried to give your attention to it because there was this random point in the match where they just do the side by side, you know, camera. And it just focuses on her for about two minutes. And obviously, I didn't really watch too much of the build up like yourself. But I was sitting there going, why are they focusing so much on her? She's, you wouldn't even know she's out there. <laughs> yeah, the, the story goes that Bulldog really hated this storyline. Um, he really hated the idea that his wife was just going to be battering into somebody else and he especially hated the fact that it made him look like an idiot like it made him go like oh my wife was hitting on a man it must be the man's fault um, so he hated that and I think that's what well, that's why as um, guys said that they sort of made it more about like right okay let's just ignore this and make it about the wrestling if there's one thing I have to point out from the Raws before this um, or sorry from the, the build up to this it's from in your house, beware of dog. Look up the shot of when <laughs> Diana Hart runs out of the ring with the WWF Championship. And there's an iconic picture of her just standing on the ramp, holds it up, great Cali style, with the belt <laughs> upside down. And the, the image is floating about Reddit, and I just love it. I was like, that image will last, like, the, <laughs> the <laughs> through the sands of time, we'll be looking at this image for years to come. But you know, you know the match itself. Right, I I thought the match itself wasn't bad. I absolutely hated the ending. Um, I thought Sean looked a million bucks in the match. I thought that Bulldog was believable that he could win. Uh, I knew, obviously, known history that he wouldn't win. Um, Vince tried to get Bulldog disqualified for throwing Michaels out the ring. As Scott said, he sort of drops him over the top rope, and I was like, "Yeah, that's like a good like 1940s rule, isn't it? That if you throw somebody out the ring, it's a disqualification." Um, Bulldog did an amazing surfboard. Sean did his brilliant big elbow, and then the finish. Guys, I need the explanation. I do not understand it. I didn't understand what Mr. Perfect was doing. What was the double pin thing? Was Hebner supposed to still be knocked out? And, just before I finish up, the other thing was, is finally, when the guys are walking to the ring for the main event, we got our first mention, someone says, Brett. I was like, yes, good point. Where the fuck's Brett Hart? Why is there no superstars on the show? Like, Shawn Michaels is carrying the weight of the company on his shoulders. All the way through it, I was just like, well, where's Brett? Where's Brett? I had to look it up afterwards, and turns out he's been gone since WrestleMania. Won't yep. be back till September. Just a terrible period for WWE. He was, he was filming the the hit show Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the most the most Canadian sounding cowboy you'll ever meet in your life. <laughs> like, I think the Diana thing, the wee Hona thing. I think that's also referred to as the Stephen Wilson thing of what Stephen Wilson of holding up title <laughs> belts. <laughs> Never forget that. <laughs> Uh, I think there's a, I think there's a point where Owen tries to imply that Brett's adopted, or at least his mother, mother hoped that Brett was adopted, or something like that. And then Jr. randomly asks Owen, "Are you adopted?" He goes, "Why? You try and imply that I'm better looking and more talented than everybody else?" If so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I often think Owen was adopted because you look at Diana, Brett, and basically any other member of the Hart family compared to Owen. Like they just look, a family other than Owen lacking so much personality. <laughs> uh, 
Gary, I write in my notes, actually, on this match, I've got a great uh, one line of notes saying, so much more pile drivers. <laughs> uh, it's amazing to think, there was pile drivers galore in this show, this is, Bulldog hits one of Mike, uh, Michael's in this match as well, there's like yeah. five, four matches with pile drivers. I know we'll talk about it, but how terrible was the, the pile driver that uh, Ahmed Johnson took? from Goldust uh, there's probably a reason why they don't do it anymore but there there was lots of good stuff about this match I think uh, I think we probably should say I never thought the British Bulldog was a good heel um, he's you a know, much better ter- baby face yeah, terrible promo no doubt about it but also like that he's not well he didn't want to go f- all the way for using his wife to help him get the title he sort of held back on that one I mean the promos and uh, before that were really good. Uh, Diana, I know you want me. Sean Michael's response was, uh, "With all due respect, Mrs. Smith, do not flatter yourself. We now know who wears the pants in the Smith household." I thought this match was was a really good match. This was Sean's second main feud since winning the championship, and the match built in a in a way that Sean Michael's match. Uh, builds uh, there was lots of wrestles I thought in the start of the match it took a wee while for me to get into it but once it hit up it really did and there were some great um, spots within there there was a um, there was a great pop bit in it where uh, Sean was on the top rope and the British Bulldog manages to leap up and drop kick him uh, while Sean stood in the top rope and there was a, you know, a wicked superplex a kind of release superplex where he let him go which you don't see as often and an absolutely cracking powerbomb which JR said was a thunderous powerbomb there was loads of great bits in it there, uh, there was an Irish whip where the bulldog did like a, a somersault into the turnbuckles and bounced back off them there was lots a really great stuff about it and then as Chris mentioned the finish I mean no point as far as I was concerned about why Mr. Perfect was in this match it made no finish why Owen pulls Perfect out and not Hebner it maybe made sense to pull Hebner out and then Perfect doesn't finish counting to three or something like that uh, for all the great things that Shawn Michaels can do in the ring there was a terrible uh, switch in music that he delivered there he missed oh, be horrible really missed them but the the uh, Gorilla Monsoon makes another appearance and uh, if there was a draft going on in 1996 David Campbell would have definitely picked Gorilla Monsoon <laughs> there he'd been absolutely coming in his pants with the amount of appearance that he made <laughs> here um, but really this this main event simply existed or the finish existed to set up the, the main event for In Your House International Incident with the with the beatdown that ha- that followed with Owen getting involved in Vader coming out, Ahmed Johnson trying to make a save, and then the Ultimate Warrior appearing um, to finish this. I think uh, when I was looking back on this, it was clear that uh, Shawn Michaels went from strength to strength to strength after this. This was the British Bulldog more or less finished in the main event picture after after this one. He never got another crack at, at that that top of the cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, think uh, I want to say he's next, the only other time he ever made events again after this after international incident. I think it's again against Sean back at one night only, but that was in the, the title. Mm-hmm. That's in the, the main event. He's in the main event and 
the Unforgiven 1999, the six-pack calendar as well. Uh, yeah, but he, he, he was, that match was the main event, he just happened to be a small part. Uh, uh, he, he, was was a like, for, he was a replacement for the Undertaker, who, who dropped out of it anyway, so it doesn't really count. And, uh, if, um, I thought this, I would have ranked this match really highly, but I thought the, the, I wasn't the biggest fan of the closing segments of it. Gary mentioned the speech and music, which was horribly done. Uh, I've also got in my notes that uh, Bulldog does not look comfortable on the top rope because oh. he does a headbutt, which one misses by a mile and two nearly he pretty much slips off the top rope. Uh, the superplex, he looks like the Gary mentioned, he looks like he slips off the top rope. And um, the finish thing, as the guys have mentioned, makes no sense. And I thought the beatdown makes a, it's not the best beatdown segment in the world. Uh, I, feel, I kind of feel like Warrior does his WrestleMania. Miss Q all over again the way he comes out it seems like just waiting and waiting for him to come out but take that aside that is a really good match for the time it's, it's bizarre that they're using like because King of the Ring was considered amongst Big Four it was a Big Five back then and uh, they're still a year into using these in your houses like the B pay-per-views as we know like now uh, but it's weird that they would use one of their Big Five pay-per-view main events to set up the, pay- the main event of a B pay-per-view when Sealy Logic would dictate you do use a BB review to build up to your big five. Dave, you did a good job of throwing your voice there. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure did. But uh, the guys pretty much hit, hit, the, hit everything on the dot with this title match. I had no complaints about it. I thought it was actually a very solidly worked match, you know, minus a couple of botches here and there. I think British Bulldogs' headbutt off the top rope was the, the, definitely the most noticeable one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that kind of put me off of this match was obviously, you know, Owen Hart being British Bulldog brother, he has to act as a heavy heel commentator throughout. And it kind of soured on me the bit, the amount of, you know, casual racism towards Jose Lothario as well. It was, it just, it, I think it just sort of soured on me a bit, you know, and, and given that, you know, stuff like that, you know, back then, you know, it wasn't as called out as much as uh, today. And it goes back to obviously Brian Pillman's promo about wanting edgier content, you know, sort of pushing the boundary a bit. But that was my only complaint, really. Um, the the guys mentioned, you know, the, the powerbomb spot. I think that was probably the best spot. And both these guys look like they carry themselves as main eventers for sure, and they deliver on match quality. The ending did feel a bit messy. Like, Mr. Perfect could have easily just uh, pulled Errol Hebner out of the ring and done the count himself. But I suppose the it was a means to an end in setting up for the next pay-per-view, although it was Ultimate Warrior's, I believe, last ever pay-per-view appearance before just disappearing altogether. I don't think he ever even made it to International Incident, uh, even though he was advertised to be a part of HBK and teaming with HBK and Ahmed Johnson. Yeah, he was replaced by Sid. He has a match match on Raw against Owen Hart a couple of weeks after this, and then he kind of, that's pretty disappears again from the WWE. I can't remember yeah. exactly why it disappears. I think that's when they... Was that not when they released the, the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior DVD? No, it was or was that later? Yeah, he was no-showing live events, apparently, and Sid was, was taking his place on those live events because he was just made, came back to the company. I think there's actually even a, the episode of Raw where they reveal Sid as the new partner. There's an episode, that same episode features an Ultimate Warrior match they have to double over new commentary like you know he's not going to be at the pay-per-view but honestly this was taped weeks before when they still thought he was going to be at the pay-per-view 1996 was a difficult year for the Warrior though I mean Vince had sort of had a fallen out with him he caved into demands 
and he, that was the same year where he squashed Hunter Hearst Helmsley in about a minute at WrestleMania 12 after no-selling the pedigree. It was a very, very weird time I mean, for the Ultimate Warrior. I mean, Warrior has a match on this show, his final pay-per-view match against Jerry the King Lawler. Um, I've got it down as uh, King's entrance is longer than the match, <laughs> which tells you <laughs> everything you need to know. Uh, King's promo just sort of summed up this entire segment. Yeah, Chris, mentioned, Chris, obviously you mentioned the the King stuff compared to the Pillman stuff. Uh, it's classic Jerry the King Waller trying to get heat the old school way. But it's just like, come on, come on, come on, come out, do something. You know, he, he ripped some of the crew an absolute belt up in a ways, you know, they probably wouldn't get away with two days, but... Yeah, and I, I think um, it's came out since then that... Uh, the Ultimate Warrior was working with a shoulder injury and that's why they basically used Jerry Lawler to fill the time on the entrance of what would have been the match um, it made me think I was like why wasn't Jerry Lawler in the actual King of the Ring tournament if you know he's messing with the scepter he's messing with the crown at the start but um, yeah there was some stuff that he said on that intro which was not cool uh, it's women like you who turn men into well guys like gold dust <laughs> I was like, yikes! Um, the, he sort of started the match with a sneak attack on Warrior, which made it like a bit less of a squash. And then I started noticing the match. I was like, oh yeah, Warrior's not moving his left shoulder at all. The clotheslines are on his like other arm, so it's a bit kind of difficult looking. Uh, he no sells the pile driver, clotheslines, and the match is done. And I was just like. Do you know what? That was a mince match, but Warrior still so over with the fans all the way through this. He, the fans are just going absolutely nuts for him. Uh-huh. Same as with when he comes out at the end. It's insane how like how mad they go for him. Yeah, great is it? Music, obviously. So, sorry, Stephen. I was just wanting to pick up on what Chris was saying there about like Warrior came back at Mania. Fans were ex- really excited about it. Really excited about it. He had this program with Goldust which they had a lot of faffing around and because he couldn't do much in the ring and then you had this match he couldn't do a great deal with so you know his comeback is Triple H Goldust the King not you know it was not great but the fans were still loving just having the Warrior back this match was if you can call it a match uh, Jerry Lawler spent more time wrestling with his wrist, the tape around his wrist than he did the Ultimate Warrior. It seems like everything he was doing was trying to ch- was about choking him with that. The no-sell on the pile-driver, the no-sell of the pedigree, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, no. near, near fall it and then make a comeback, at least got three clotheslines and a shoulder tackle and that was it. But I think we have to acknowledge the stupidity of the angle that set this up Chris you mentioned right at the top of the show about the king hitting the warrior with the photo frame but the warrior was wearing a Dave Hockney baseball cap <laughs> it was a, an enforced hat apparently apparently it was a yeah apparently when uh, see years before that when they did the segment with the macho man the macho man hit some of the scepter apparently mm-hmm. it takes quite a bad knock of the scepter so yeah apparently he's asked to wear a hat that's quite Enforced, so that when he gets hit with it, he doesn't get hot. Which well, is why, which is why he seems to be randomly wearing a hat for the first time in his career. Yes, well, that's what the king says. He agreed with him in advance, 
that he, I think this is on the self-destruct DVD that he was going to help with the back of the frame so the glass would shatter out the way not on top of him but he still came out wearing this hat um, and uh, that was not agreed in advance and as you say it looked really stupid <laughs> Did the, did the baseball cap not... Was that not promoting his own comic book as well? Yeah, I remember reading something about this that he cuts a promo with a baseball cap on that's, um, that's promoting his comic book. I can't even, I don't know if it's before this era or after this era. It wasn't on any of the Raws that I watched. <laughs> it's, um, it's not a great way for him to end his pay-per-view in-ring career. I think it's fair to say it's very... No. He was just much more mar- he was much more marketable as just his persona and his character, whereas in the ring he was just extremely erratic, out of control. And I think Triple H described him on the DVD as like one of the most unprofessional guys he's ever worked with. Uh, people that he was not the best guy to work with. I think he overcame. It was a big thing that he overcame all this when he came back in the Hall of Fame, but then unfortunately passed away days after he goes in the Hall of Fame. I think the only reason we're really talking about this match is because it's his last pay per view match. It's an absolute mm-hmm. dud, mm-hmm. and. The show itself is got the rest of the matches have got a bit of a mix to it. Uh, I know one of the matches uh, Gary would particularly keen on talking about is one that we kind of referenced in our feature show a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Mankind Undertaker match. Uh, Gary, a match that's often forgotten about in the feuds because it's not a boiler room brawl, it's not getting chucked off a hell in a cell, it's not uh, getting buried alive. It's the two of them having their first ever technical match, one on one in the pay per view. I mean, this is great. This is WWS storytelling at its best. So these two had had an issue that started from the night after Mania, but had managed to they'd managed to hold off getting the two of them together to the King of the Rings. So that was great. And what was really a couple of things that were unusual about this match that started off with a really fast pace, which was really unusual for an Undertaker match in that era where Undertaker appears in the ring behind Mankind and we're, we're often, often running there. Now, you know, Undertaker gets to work with a proper worker rather than one of these lumbering giants uh, as well. And the Undertaker gets beat by a technical submission, I think, uh, or technical knockout, which had never happened before and I don't think has happened since that the Undertaker had been put down in a way like that. So I think those things made it uh, made this match really unique and people were genuinely shocked that Mankind had managed to beat him in the, in the middle of the ring and you know Mankind was the heel in here but he never cheated, you know, in this uh, to get this victory. There were some spots in the match which were big shots again at the time. Um, when you look back on them, you know um, it, you winced when you see the chair shots to the head. Mm. Uh, that was good. There's a good spot where Mick uh, does the running run elbow off the apron and the Undertaker gets a chair up. That was pretty sweet. There was a massive big pop with a running knee to the stairs, which oh, wow, today cool. would not re- register much, but I mean, you know, my God, then it did. So I thought this was a really good match for all those all those reasons Stephen mm-hmm. uh, uh, Scott you were obviously on the Mick Foley show with myself and we talked about this feud that we mid mentioned just how good the chemistry was between uh, Foley and Taker yeah definitely I definitely think I stand by what I said on that show about Foley being up there as one of Taker's all time group rivals you know him and Kane I think him Kane and Sean are, are the top three 
in my opinion, like Jaguar's best like rivals of all time. And like it's interesting I mentioned on the Mick Foley show how at this time he's alternating pay per view matches between Mankind and then Goldust and back to Mankind, back to Goldust. And these both these these two weren't giants but they could like match Undertaker in terms of mind games and these are the kind of kids Undertaker needed at this time to get free from this whole monster of the week thing or monster of the one thing that he'd been doing up until this point and you know the file drivers and that unprotected chair shot to the head those are things that they don't do as much anymore which I'm, I'm thankful that they don't do as much anymore when you watch this and like Mike Foley doing his you know Curtis Jack-esque you know, elbow off the the turn, off the apron to the outside which is one of these trademark back in the WCW days and also like that you know, they plant the seeds for the inevitable uh, ball bear you'll turn at SummerSlam by yeah. bear seemingly trying to help the Undertaker but accidentally hits him with the urn and then that leads into the mandible claw because the Undertaker's a bit knocked silly so he's more vulnerable to the mandible claw and you know, even Owen I think it was Owen Hart as the commentator hints or maybe Paul Bear knew that Undertaker was losing and wants to jump ship to Mankind so the seeds are firmly planted for the, the turn at SummerSlam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dave, I know you're really... This is an era of wrestling that you've watched in a lot of great detail. You, you probably hear Mankind Undertaker, you'll probably think of the Hell in a Cell match. Uh, so what's your thoughts on this matchup? Is it a bit different than what happened in any of those? Yeah, I think this was actually a bit of a sleeper match of the whole show, because I think after the, the WWF title match, this was the longest match of the card, and I think this match in particular was defined not just by two very psychologically uh, definitive characters but two guys who could pull off amazing spots and still make it look as brutal as possible like you know and Gary summed up the spots pretty much in a nutshell like all those spots is, is what made this match particularly special you know like these guys aren't afraid to take risks they aren't afraid to really you know try and hammer it home to really put this other person down because the Again, the mental battle that goes on in there as well, it makes you exert just as much effort. Uh, that shot in particular with the knee to the stairs, that made me wince just at how sore that it looked. But And they, they could get away with all these you know, weapon shots, the chair shots, the stair shots, and the refs definitely felt a bit more lenient when it came to you know calling for disqualifications and stuff. So it was, I'm glad we got to get to see those brutal spots uh, throughout. But seeing The Undertaker sort of lose via technical submission it's not something you see that often so it, the result itself was a bit of a shocker but you could obviously put it down to long term storytelling where it goes to say obviously Paul Bearer's heel turn and hitting him with the arm and his facial responses at the end were just it's basically summed up he was just like no what have I done and stuff so the, you could tell there was a little bit of sympathy there but yeah I think outside of the probably Austin versus Merrill I think this was probably my favourite match of the night yeah, Chris, it does a does a great job. You say I didn't realise until watching this again how much it plants the seeds for the tunnel at SummerSlam and just the general um, the character of mankind is great in this. The way he just kind of sits about, he squeals, you know, and it's one of the most clean early losses I remember Taker taking as well, which shows the faith he had in working with a guy like Four. Yeah, this was the. Um, I'd, I'd never seen this era of Mankind before, you know, with the sort of uh, 
brown, ugly, like this, like kind of ripped outfit, the uh, screeching, and, and obviously so early on in his WWF career, this is his first ever pay-per-view for them. Um, and this felt to me like the first big match of the night. Like up until this, we've had Lawler and Warrior, we've had the tag title match, we've had the two semi-finals, but this felt like the first time we got like a big match. It was so good to see Taker working at like full speed in this match. Obviously, um, his later years he can he couldn't do this speed like the the speed of his punches and his movement off the the top rope is just fantastic. They worked so well together. And Vince had a nice little detail that I'd never heard before. He said that mankind's right hand had been mutilated, and that's why his fingers were all like sort of tied together. I was like, oh yeah, nice. I've never thought of why that is. Um, and. Uh, like the, the the chair shot as you'd mentioned, the the stairs shot as you'd mentioned were all brutal. Do you guys have any idea how old these wrestlers are here? You know, we were talking about about um, Vader and Jake the Snake's ages earlier. Yeah. I, I looked this Jake up. Jake's thirty one, I'm sure at this point. Yeah, well, they're actually both thirty one. Like Mankind had just turned thirty one two weeks prior to this match. Undertaker was two months before. And I was like, I never would have thought they were the same age, and I never would have thought they were that young. But it just shows how well they can move. And then the mandible claw to win it was great. Only question was, what music did they play at full time? Like it wasn't. No, he's got two different entrance musics. He had the one. He had the creepy one to come out, and once they won, they had the very jolly happy. Yeah. We talked about it on the on the Polish show. It's just it's it's kind of like it's just shows a kind of psychotic element to his character I think oh okay okay well that's cool and then of course Owen on commentary as always throughout, throughout the whole night phenomenal he straight away just on on the mic he's like oh I don't know if Paul Bader intended to hit Mankind and I was just like that's a nice little preview of what's to come at SummerSlam so yes uh, first really great match of the night probably my favourite match of the night as well yeah it's a, it's a really good match and as followed by a uh, not too bad a match, I think it's fair to say. The Intercontinental title match between Ahmed Johnson and Goldust. Uh, Dave, I'll go to you in this one. Uh, mm-hmm. 1996 Goldust as creepy as F. <laughs> oh, this level of Goldust was just outrageous in some aspect. And I think, I get the impression WWE wanted to push it to a point where people were physically uncomfortable with watching a character like that on stage. And the the flamboyance and the campness is just taking it's just cracked up to eleven in this instance. Uh, particularly, you know, he comes out with the really long robe. He comes out with the wig on, and it's it's just his mannerisms, you know, before, during, and after the event, really just added to the depth of the character. You know, he was it was all about sort of the giving CPR to Ahmed Johnson after his King of the Ring loss, and. Apparently, Ahmed Johnson really didn't enjoy, you know, being a part of that. I like, really, I'm yeah, because <laughs> I know some people just don't like, you know, being uh, forcibly kissed. I mean, who'd have thunk? <laughs> I know. But um, Ahmed Johnson really came into this match with a lot of intensity, and he had a, a bone to pick with Goldust. And straight off the bat, you know, this is a. It doesn't. They don't. They, they emphasize on commentary like how big he actually is. He's like six foot six and about three hundred pounds or so. And he just goes and one of the first things he does, he does a like a a plancha dive over the top rope, and it's 
it's madness to think you know it's like somebody that size could pull off a stunt like that it's it's one of those things that really made sort of the the attitude era kind of what it was or I think this might have been just before the attitude era I can't I don't know my timings yeah. that well yes, uh, but yeah that move alone just had me thinking right I've got to watch this match I want to see what else Ahmed Johnson can do but the rest of it you know it just felt like headlock central you know Goldust was very much into striking and rest holds and they didn't really sort of get it going until the the sort of botched pile driver towards the end and that's when Johnson finally got his second wind and then things started picking up and meanwhile uh, Marlena or Terry Runnels is just sitting there outside in this director's chair smoking a big fat cigar like it's just, just nonchalantly thinking yeah Goldust is winning this I don't need to motivate him or anything but uh, th- th- this could have been so much more given the, the intensity of the feud but it kind of like uh, John Cena Randy Orton at the 2014 Royal Rumble it was there's too many rest holds for my liking mm-hmm. uh, Chris one of the things Dave mentioned was the intensity of Ahmed Johnson my favourite part of the match is when he comes out rattles through the doors the two guys who were holding the door one of which is Matt Hardy I think if you look closer the one on the left is Matt Hardy it's just go flying absolutely not for sixes it's just um, that, it's bad that that's the highlight of my match Chris yeah I knew that Matt and Jeff had been you know I don't know what to say King of the Ring rent boys at one point in their careers and uh, I just I couldn't picture which ones they were but I knew they were in there somewhere Um, I agree with you Uh, Johnson's entrance was amazing I thought he looked a million bucks in this match I thought he looked like a main event star I was happy that he came out at the end and was sort of in the main three guys at the end of the night which I thought was really really good Um, I don't know if any's noticed this but they mentioned that Ahmed Johnson won the Kuwait Cup Mm -hmm. and I was like ooh what's this looked it up it was sort of a King of the Ring type tournament which took place in Kuwait in May 1996 it was um, over like four days, I think it was, and Johnson beat Aldo Montoya, Steve Austin, Bret Hart, uh, sorry, Owen Hart, and Triple H to win the tournament. So ah. good on him. Um, and I he, like he's, he's still the reigning Kuwait Cup champion. He's never lost it. He's like ah, the like Braun with the greatest <laughs> Royal Rumble. Uh, Undertaker, Undertaker with the the two wake trophy as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Good, brother, good brothers are technically still the greatest tag team of all time. Yes, and long may that continue. Um, but yeah, I love the use of the steel steps. Like at the start, Ahmed launches the steel steps at Goldust's head, and probably would have killed him if he hit him. Uh, Goldust responded by bouncing him off Ahmed Johnson's back, which looks so sore. Um, here's a thought, right? David talked about the kissing and how weird the kissing is. What does Marlena think about the fact that Goldust constantly wants to give Ahmed Johnson mouth to mouth? To mouth? Like, what's their relationship here? Because, like, is she... I know she gets called his director, but are they banging? Uh, so, they, are, they, are, they are married. They come out as married. They are actually married in real life at this point in time. So know. it's like a kind of menage a trois thing? Maybe they're just like I don't know. Chris, it's Chris, don't kink shame. He's androgynous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not... I'm holding my hands up. I am not kink shaming. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with any of this. Whatever he's into, I'm sure Marlena was very supportive. But yeah, do you know what I was thinking as well? The whole kissing storyline, how is that okay if it's man on man? If it never would be okay man on woman? Like if the whole gimmick was a man wanted to kiss a woman all the way through the match, like that would not be okay. So I don't get why it's um, fine with man on man. But to get back to the wrestling, I think the Pearl River Plunge 
is a great finishing move and new champion, first black singles champion, WWF. Um, nice to see him celebrating with Shawn Michaels in the back. I had never seen an Ahmed Johnson match before this match, and I was just all in on it. I thought he was, I was like, oh, he must be WWF champion. But yeah. I know he had some issues with like. Was it di- diabetes later on in his career kidney, or something like that? Yeah, the, the, the kidney yeah. issue uh, yeah. ruled him that forced him to relinquish the IC title later in the year when he was going to be fighting for the World Championship because, uh, Gary, you remember really rightly around about this point, they seemed really high on Ahmed Johnson. Like He was everywhere at one point in time in WWE at this time. Yeah, he was getting pushed to the moon at this point and actually I want a ticket for an Ahmed Johnson Intercontinental Championship celebration party. I want to go to a party with the Bushwhackers, the Godwins and Aldo Montoya. <laughs> um, I think the guy's, the guy's summaries are right. I mean, there's been three significant uh, Goldust feuds up to this point. Razor Ramon, Roddy Piper, Ahmed Johnson, all rather homophobic in nature. Um, some of the things the guys had said there there were some other movements throughout the match where he would be doing moves and he would like to sort of hand gestures over Ahmed's ass and he had him down for a pinfall and he sort of slithered on top of him from his feet up uh, for the referee to pin him as well, there was quite a lot of these and Owen on commentary said of Goldust he's never uh, never met him met a man he didn't like is what Goldust had said to Owen Hart after they had had a fallen out and Owen uh, had, was pleased that they'd made up uh, in addition to what Chris said about the Pearl River Plunge Ahmed Johnson delivers a wicked looking spinebuster in this match just before that there but um, this looked like a big this should have been or I think what was designed to be a launch pad for Ahmed Johnson and sadly never got it because he had been featured fairly prominently all throughout his run in WWF up until this point and it's never never quite took off the way people had hoped mm-hmm. yeah and uh, Scott on the Goldust side of things this match kind of to me I feels like this is the point where the initial run of Goldust kind of faded out because after that he goes into the feeding Triple H and then goes into this mad thing where he goes through like all the things like the artist falling on his gold dust and he looks even yeah. weirder than he does at this particular point you know yeah I mean I think it's it, it still is the team period we're in when uh, gold dust is getting beat up that gets a lot of thoughts from people he clearly had a lot of heat for his he even said that there was talks I'm going to have to do with Sean for the world title and talked of course of winning the title but they were too worried about what the backlash would be from the fans that the heat would get for goals would get too much for that and Ultimately, at the match plan, matching Goldust and Goldust almost fought Sean at mind games, but more fully got slaughtered in his place. And and Ahmed, I think, yeah, his injuries really held him back. I think he was made challenge Undertaker for the world title at Canadian Stampede, but he injured his knee a few weeks before in a brawl between the, uh, the Nation of Domination and the DOA while delivering a pearl of plunge on the outside of the ring, and he injured his knee, and so that was just against him. So the story goes, apparently Goldust was made to put his hand in a way in front of the camera that would block both his and Ahmed's mouth and they would act like he was kissing him but he wouldn't. But apparently Goldust didn't tell Ahmed he was going to do Apparently not only did he kiss him but he stuck his tongue in his mouth and so <laughs> Ahmed was legitimately just, like, legit wanted to batter Dustin Rhodes for this. 
And it is also a shame that they don't hype up the fact that Ahmed's the first black Intercontinental Champion. Yeah. Especially considering that our most two, our two most recent Intercontinental Champions are both been African American. And so uh, it's interesting to go back to see the first thing that happened wasn't until 1986. Before that, like the most prominent black champions would, were Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas when they were tag team champions. And they did the same when the year before when uh, Mabel won the King of the Ring. They didn't really acknowledge that as a historical moment, mm-hmm. which we've done in this podcast many, many, many times. Yeah, I yeah. don't think we should really mention too much about Mabel. Because I think we ran that one to death. <laughs> I think it was fair, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we also talk about like in JR and Vince hyping a lot of one of the revolting things I've ever seen in my life. And you got Owen Hart as a heel commentator trying to be like, oh, he was just trying to give a manifestation. He was just trying to save his life, McMahon. Yeah, it was the, the mouth to mouth is what led to the comeback that led to <laughs> Johnson winning the title. Uh, I'm going to be brutally honest on this final match I don't really have a lot to say about it does anybody want to talk about the Godwins versus the Smoking Guns <laughs> this yeah, match I was would... all about this match was all about Sunny really you know because he was you know jumping uh, allegiances between uh, the Guns the Godwins and I think at one point the what do you call the them body the, the Body Donuts the Body Donuts yeah and who was that one? Was it Cloudy? Was the one that was uh, clearly a, a bloke in drag, or was that the? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Like, that, that's where the that's where the attention was. You know, it was Sunny versus Cloudy rather than you know the Guns versus the Godwins. But I actually didn't really notice this until now. But when you take the initials of the Godwins, they spell out Hog and Pig. Like, <laughs> I've literally just only just clocked that. <laughs> this match. Sorry, Scott. Sorry, on you go. Uh, the, the Godwins were surprisingly popular in this match if you watch it back I mean Billy Gunn was still absolutely hopeless on the mic Sonny <laughs> looked amazing as a cowgirl I've got to say uh, the pig uh, Phidias Eye Godwin was uh, was good as a sympathetic baby face but this is another match in this tournament I think this is the th- sorry the show the third match with a pretty poor finish it was all very sudden when Bart Gunn hits Phidias in the back of the head with a boot and that wasn't obvious that's what happened at the time it looked like just a double axe handle um, but yeah it was it was just kind of there the tag division at that time was like these four teams and there wasn't a, a great deal of depth or anything really to get excited about in my opinion the Godwins yeah. even brought goats to the ring as well <laughs> like, what, what was the point? Yeah, I think the thing you said about the pig and the hog, I think it's one of those moments in wrestling like, where you finally figure out what Paul Bear secretly means. Or like, I remember it took me longer than it should to realise that the reason the 3D was called the 3D was it was just for Dudley Death Drop, even though JR always would say 3D and Dudley Death Drop so close together when they hit the move. But yeah, the main story I think is Sunny, as you said, like, because like, he keeps switching to whichever manager and whichever team has the titles, because it was the boy Donna's originally. Then in a house show between the last two in your houses, Godwins won them, and the free for all for Polar Dog, uh, Smoking Guns won them. I mean, these tag tails have been passed between more men than Sonny has. For <laughs> sake. But I, I just, the main thing I want to say about this match is that, you know, it used to be a running joke, you don't want to be the Bark Gun in the team, but how did the Smoking Guns uh, win this match when Bark Gun came to Billy's rescue with that well timed foot to the back of the head? Bark Gun you- saved the day. See if you watch this match, 
it's a good thing that after Bart Gun wins Brawl for all of this side nah we're not pushing this guy because he's really really bad uh, yeah. this isn't you want to add in this tag match I had I, I, I've seen a bit of the smoking guns um, work and <laughs> work I'm making big inverted commas saying I've seen a bit of their work from 1995 but this is the first time I've ever seen them work heel like I've, I've only ever known the Billy Gunn who's like the happy-go-lucky guy but here they were sort of smarmy heels and um, a couple of interesting points was like Bart Gunn clearly taps three times on an arm bar <laughs> from Henry Godwin and I was like eh writing that down because um, obviously was this before tap outs because I know they did a lot of like yeah. verbal mm-hmm. submissions but he quite clearly was like dum 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 one two three and I was like you just have to <laughs> give the sm- give the Godwins the belts um, there was a funny moment on commentary commentary is like the highlight of this pay-per-view for me Vince tells Owen to sort of chill out because it's Owen Hart's first time on pay-per-view commentary and he's like hey hey how many times have you won a slammy and it's just like yeah got him <laughs> um, it's a really strange world where Henry Godwin is making hot tags to Phineas Godwin and the crowd are going nuts I tried to sort of equate it and hear me out I was like is this maybe kind of like why uh, like in a similar vein to Too Cool in 2000 like they're, they were good at the time the crowd were into them you look back now and it's terrible but like is it kind of the same it was just all of its time also it's like a very southern gimmick and uh, maybe like southern state wrestling fans yeah. were really into it I don't know no, I compare that I compare this to it's, this gave me vibes of Otis Mandy the whole Phineas Sonny thing yeah it gave me similar vibes to the Otis Mandy stuff granted Phineas does not get near Sonny yeah. you know that man could not pull off a bum bag naked so that's probably why Otis probably could pull off a bum bag naked is Billy Gunn the Dolph Ziggler of this equation then (laughs) he did have a a Dolph Ziggler-esque hairstyle kind of it was more like curtains in a way sorry I was was just going to say the absolute last note I have on this match is as soon as the pinfall happens the crowd just start chanting Sonny Sonny just proving that she's the only star and these five wrestlers. See, now, now thanks to Chris mentioning too cool, I wanted the Godwins after they lost just to get Hellbelly Jim come and get with her the sunglasses on <laughs> just have them dancing. Ah, uh, yeah. The Godwins would later become Southern Justice, who were pretty much Jeff Jarrett's heavy. Uh, Mark Cantonbury, who was Henry, I think he just, he done his back in and had to kind of retire. And obviously... Phineas would become Dennis Knight, later becoming Midian, and as I referenced, would become Naked Midian. <laughs> Which is next year's one of our list of potential Christmas specials. I will not mention who Midian's tag team partner was in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> because I don't want to mention it again. Yeah. Uh, say, his, say his name and put some respect on it. <laughs> They faced, Triple H in a, they faced Triple H in a casket match, so that's how I, I know who and you're referring one. to. And, and they won, one. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right, we went, through, we went through the matches. I'm going to ask you all briefly just to end the show, just a couple of words. Uh, obviously, what would you give this show out of five if you had to go for it? So, uh, Chris, what would you go for? I think I'm going to go three because 
subtly all the way through the early years of the WWF, the King of the Ring is a really important pay-per-view. If you look at the crowning of Brett and the ending of Hulkamania, then you look at Owen getting his push, which, you know, sends him on a year-long trajectory of basically almost being in the main event. You get this with 316, and um, then in a couple of years' time, we've got the Hell in a Cell match with Undertaker and Mankind. I think that, like, King of the Ring has no business being as good as it is, because it's quite a naff pay-per-view, but all of these ones in the mid to late 90s all turn out pretty good. Um, So, yeah, there was a lot of absolute duff on here, but... Overall, I'll I'll just go three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave. Yeah, I think that's a fair fair judgment. I'm also going to give it a three. Like there were a few very good points throughout. You know, with the WWF title match, uh, Undertaker, Mankind, Austin, Mark Merrow is the opener. You know, all very solid. I just felt it was let down by one too many screwy finishes, a few way too short matches for what it should have been. Uh, but that being said, I think that the overall ring quality was actually pretty decent, uh, particularly in the title matches, even if the Intercontinental Championship felt like you could sleep halfway through it. Yeah, and it did, you know, in a bit of a messy way, it did set up for the international incident show the following at the following pay-per-view. So you have to give it props, you know, if, if the, the purpose was there, the execution could have been better. So I'll, I'll give it a three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott? I mean, obviously, if this was the king of the Tokyo Dome tournament, I'd give it five and a half stars. But I think I'm going to say join the consensus and say three because, you know, I think the main reason outside of obviously having to watch it to review it here, if I was just to sit down and watch this show, the main reason I'd be going back for wouldn't be just wouldn't be for one of the matches. It would be because of the Austin promo and the significance of it now. Looking back at the 316 promo, but you know, you got. Austin, he looks like a star throughout the night despite both his matches varying wildly in quality. You know, Jake, for his limitations, is still over. Owen's great on commentary. The Mankind Undertaker match is another possible candidate for match tonight other than the opener. The main event's a solid match up until the finish. It's got a lot going for it, but there are some very matches that are very hard to sit through. Uh, so I don't know if I can go much higher than a three for this. Mm. Gary, are you going to differentiate from the three, or is that going to be...? Uh, no, I'm not. I actually wrote, wrote three down before Christopher Murray spoke as well. <laughs> um, I think uh, one of the great things about these feature shows delving back into something that's just got a, a lot, you know, an anniversary show, 25 years on, there are some iconic moments in this show but your mind sometimes, or you you remember it differently. So I remember Stone Cold coming out of this pay-per-view hotter than I think he actually did come out of it. Uh, his tournament victory was not the thing that put him over the edge. It was over the top, rather. It was his promo and the seeds that it planted there. But I think it in. Ter- in the reason I've given it this rating is I think the tournament let it down. There were some good matches, some iconic moments in the, the show. But overall, the matches, some of the matches were let down by the finishes. And I think if you had some some tighter finishes and better finishes, this would have been a. I think this would have scored a wee bit higher. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I'm going to go with the full consensus. I'm going to go with three as well. Some good match quality in there. Obviously, the Austin promo, fantastic. Uh, but a lot of letdowns in there. The Warrior King match probably shouldn't have happened. Um, the IC title could have had less of a gold dust groping Mohamed Johnson for a pinfall. Uh, yeah, they could have had a better way to coordinate Austin, and as we mentioned, the kind of finishes, but there was some really good wrestling in there. You know, the main event was mostly good wrestling. The opener is a very solid opener from any standards. I think you put that on any show, it would hold up as a fantastic opening match. And uh, Mankind Data, you know, what, what's not to love? But that is our look back at the 1996 King of the Ring now if you're like some of our panellists and have never watched the 1996 King of the Ring I would recommend going back watching it after listening to this or maybe watch before you listen to this and get yourself a good idea give us your opinion did you rate this show three stars as well did you go five and a half stars you never <laughs> know are you a fan of the Godwins please let <laughs> us know we would like to talk more about the Godwins on this particular podcast sometime or maybe Stephen. not Stephen, do you think the Godwins will feature on our forthcoming feature show where we do the Mount Rushmore of tag teams? Depends who's on that show. They may want to talk about the Godwins, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, the body donors. You know, the smoking guns. <laughs> this iconic era of tag team wrestling. <laughs> uh, the, the head shrinkers, I think they were about then as well at this particular point. Uh, the, the bushwhackers, you mentioned them too. Men uh, on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as Gary, as Gary mentioned, next week we'll be talking about the Mount Rushmore of tag teams on here on the feature show. We've also got shows coming up in July that are quite good as well. We're talking about most impactful debuts, the best tables of the 21st century. We'll be looking back at the Invasion pay-per-view of 2001. And yes, we have caved in to Sarah Graves' demands and we have a show about Christian. At last, he's got his show! <laughs> Yeah, that's all coming up on the feature show. We've also got all the other great content we do. We've got ESSR Central, all the news of the week. We've got Saturday Draft Live, where we talk about the draft that we do. East meets West, where we talk about Japan. Loads of stuff as well on YouTube. Quiz Showdown is going to be is on there. The Bucket Tournament's on there. We've got loads to search for us on there. Uh, as I said, we're on social media too, so if you want to keep up with everything we're doing, you want to keep up with our dodgy opinions, I may do a thread on the Godwins if I get enough likes on the page. <laughs> I may have to hold that one up if, um, I'm not on the Red Rushmore tag team show so you may be disappointed that Godwins may not go on this one but you never know anyway uh, I'd like to thank my panel for this very enjoyable look back at the King of the Ring 96 uh, to Gary thanks thank you Stephen mm, Scott thank you thank you very much uh, to Dave thank you very much thank you and to Chris Murray who for obviously people not uh, seeing the video has had the Hogan promo no not the Hogan promo the Austin promo in the background of his uh, avatar for this full show <laughs> yes and the absolute last line of my notes is in all caps where is Brett <laughs> <laughs> it's also got Michael Hayes who for some reason was Don Hendricks at this point in time <laughs> more, that's, 90s, that's what... more 90s mistakes Chris is, Chris, is that, Chris is that little boy in that promo who sees Brett going in the corridor and sings his name. Brett! <laughs> Brett! <laughs> anyway, that's enough of us. We'll see you next time. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Scott McLeod. And I'm Grant McGrobby. We are the hosts of the monthly show on Eats Eat Suplex Retreat East Meets West. Where we'll bring you all the latest happenings, reviews and big events from New Japan and the land of the Far East. 
You can remember to check that out on the Deep Suplex Regime podcast feed on all good Android podcasting sites like Anchor, Spotify, or iTunes now. Sports Social Podcast Network.